0: Good morning. God's grace and peace be with you in our risen Savior Jesus Christ, dear brothers and sisters. This past Monday, I was at pastors' conference in Fort Worth, and after the first day of meetings, my pastor friends and I, a group of us, went back to the hotel room and um, we began to talk. The TV was out, and for some reason, uh, I called down. And I said, "Hey, our TV's not working," and they said, "Oh, we can move your your room, sir." and I said you guys want to move rooms and they said ah let's just talk and as you well know we pastors can talk for hours and hours and hours and we did well in that put you right to sleep well the conversation turned um to amazing professional american football players and particularly um Running backs. We were talking about the greatest running backs of all time. And I think it started one of my pastor friends from Houston. He said, Do you remember Barry Sanders? He was a running back for the Lions in the 90s and early 2000s. And uh, yeah, I remember him. And uh, he said that guy could just make people look foolish when he ran the football. I mean, he would juke one way and go another and people would fall backwards like he had just pushed them down without even touching them. And he would do spins around people uh, like like a circus. And and all of a sudden, you know what happens after you get talking about something like that? Somebody pulls out their cell phone, right? And they've looked up on YouTube the best Barry Sanders highlights. And there we all were, huddled around the phone. Oh, look at that guy. He looks foolish. Oh, man, you don't see that anymore in the NFL. You just don't see that kind of a running back. He's a freak. And then, I think it was Chad who brought it up, he said, no, if you want to see a freak, did you ever see Earl Campbell run? I mean, this guy's thighs were 34 inches around. That's bigger than your head. (laughs) And this guy would be a human wrecking ball as he just ran down the field. And sure enough, within 30 seconds, another person had pulled up all the Earl Campbell highlights and we're all gathered around. Oh, look at him go. They're bouncing off of him like pinballs as the Tyler Rose makes his way down the field. And then somebody else said, did you ever, um, you know, that reminds me of Bo Jackson. Bo Jackson could do that, but then he also played baseball for the Royals in the summertime. He was a freak athlete. And there's this one time when he was playing outfield for the Royals and he actually caught the ball and then he ran up the outfield wall. And then somebody said, No way. And they said, Yeah, it happened. Looks it up on YouTube and there's Bo Jackson running up the outfield wall like Spider Man. It's incredible, unbelievable. Um, And and, and then we looked at more highlights and said, oh, look, Bo Jackson, he's breaking that bat over his leg like a toothpick. He breaks the bat over his head one time like a toothpick. Look, it's right here. He's throwing people out from the warning track all the way at home base with one throw. And and here we were looking at all these amazing highlights because we'd seen them. Okay, I just wanted to share that with you so that you know what we do at pastors' conferences. (laughs) Okay, we stand around watching YouTube videos and giggling like little girls. When we've seen something or experienced something in our life and we know that it's true, we share it with other people. And if we can, we want to show them. I know that's true because you do it too. You're the ones that send me emails, that send me text messages, that take all of your contacts and say, I can't believe this. And you send it out to everybody. Look at this picture. Look at this incredible cat video. That's what I guess is really popular now. There's over 2 million cat videos of cats climbing into fish bowls and doing twists and turns and all sorts of stuff. It's, you need to show the things that you know are true and you believe are amazing and incredible things. I had somebody text me and all of her contacts, and she's a credible source. She says, I'm not spamming you, I promise. But my son's friend learned a a loophole on how to get into Stanford tuition-free for a certain amount of time. And I said, well, thanks a lot, my son's four years old, but I appreciate the thought. I have to share the good news, and I have to show it if I can. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 has experienced something with his own eyes and witnessed it that he can't help but share with the Corinthians. And it's not a cat video and it's not something trivial like some athlete's amazing play. He's sharing something that is incredibly deep and rich for him personally because he saw it with his own eyes. He knows it to be true. And what's above that is that it happened not just to him but to many other people that he writes about. And he's writing to the Corinthians who have, I'm going to say, gospel amnesia. They're losing track of what the gospel really is in their life, and they're wondering, is this gospel credible? Can I trust it? Is it um, something that, that I can put my faith in? Paul has preached the gospel to them, but all of a sudden their church is falling apart. There's sexual immorality, there's, um, and it's, not, it's open and rampant. There's cliques in the church. Uh, there's divisions, and there's leadership problems. It's all throughout the whole book of 1 Corinthians. And then you get to chapter 15, and you learn that they even struggle with the physical resurrection of Jesus and paul wants to reinstate in their hearts and to hold a phone in front of their eyes if he could and say look i saw it with my own eyes and i'm not alone there's over 500 people who've liked this video jesus rising from the dead and we're physically there and saw the resurrection of our lord and savior and it's on that that the gospel is built it's on that that the love of Christ can be seen for everything that it is. And so Paul's addressing their gospel amnesia when he writes in 1 Corinthians. Um, starting in verse, uh, verse 1, page 6 in the service folder, he writes, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. Okay, stop right there. Look at that word, remind you. That, that word in the Greek language, to remind, actually means to certify your identity, and it's used in two ways, uh, in other ways outside of this context. It means to certify your identity if you're an alien going into another country. Let's say that you're flying into the United States from somewhere like Spain today or a, a country in, the, uh, in Europe. You have to state where you're from and legally say, this is my status. Or, and this is the other place that it's used, it's used in a legal setting if you're taking the stand as a witness, Uh, The Greek word means to state your name in the public setting of a courtroom. And you hear that today. In fact, one of the first things you have to state when you're in court as a witness is state your name, right? That's what this word is talking about. Paul wants them to restate and state their identity in the gospel. He says, this is who you are and this is what you take a stand on. I'm reminding you, that's not a very strong word. I think even stronger word would be, I want to certify in your heart that you can take your identity and say, this is what I stand on, this is what I believe. And he's recertifying it in your hearts too. If you're wondering, like the Corinthians, whether you can believe in a Savior who rose from the dead. He goes and he he goes on and says by this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you otherwise you have believed in vain. He's saying here this is a huge deal. Your eternal welfare is in the balance here whether you believe the gospel and in this risen Savior or whether you reject it in your heart. If you're calling yourself a Christian, but you don't take everything that the gospel says about Jesus, then he says you believed in vain. And so this is a huge deal. Your soul is in in balance here. If you believe in the the, the gospel that Jesus rose from the dead, that he died for your sins, or if you don't, that's what he's saying here. So that's what he says. And we struggle like the Corinthians, um, who are probably struggling at this point in two ways. Some things about the gospel trouble us intellectually and spiritually. That's what, um, that's what we struggle with when we hear the stories from the gospel. Intellectually, let's start there. You're telling me that a virgin gave birth to a baby. This is the gospel narrative, and then that baby grew up and he never sinned. And that that man called Jesus of Nazareth did things like walk on water that wasn't frozen. And he changed water into wine, and he pulled coins out of cod, and he cursed fig trees, and they died, and he fed thousands and tens of thousands of people by a sack lunch, and then you're going to tell me that he died, and a couple days later that that dead body came back to life again. Now, that's a huge leap to believe just one of those stories, but then, the gospel says, believe all of those stories, even the resurrection of Jesus. And you know why you and I struggle with our intellect to believe all of that? Because we don't see that happen every day. You don't see dead people coming back to life again. In fact, if you're in conversations around your work or around the community, do people even take the Bible seriously when you bring it up? You believe that stuff? You believe that whole stuff about the miracles in the Bible and you know what? It's a big leap for people to even have a conversation about the Bible because of that first thing. It's, it's t- tough for our minds to conceive that all of these things actually happened. And number two, another roadblock that we struggle with is spiritually. This book is telling me, this gospel is telling me, that I am a sinner and that I need grace and I need help. Now, I'm a guy, and if you tell me to go see a doctor, I'm not going to go until my, I'm on the kitchen floor on my back, and then I'm going to say, okay, maybe I need to go see the doctor. But you're telling me now as a human being, that I'm broken and I'm so broken that I need a Savior to come in and to save me and to fix me and to forgive me. That's a huge leap for us spiritually to believe, but that's what the gospel says. Paul's addressing that, and he says in the next couple of verses about the physical resurrection. For what I received, I pass on to you as a first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born." Do you know who else struggled intellectually and spiritually with this gospel? Saul of Tarsus, Paul, who's writing this very letter. Here's the story of Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus was born about five AD, so maybe about Jesus' age. He grew up um, with a family in modern day Turkey, was where he was born. Um, And that family was Jewish and they also were Roman. That means that they had dual citizenship and that they had every advantage in both of those major circles. Gentile circles, the Romans, and also the Jewish circles. That they were accepted, that they were good, that they were right with those two groups and they were advantaged. At the age of about five, we think that Saul of Tarsus' family moved to Jerusalem where they sent their son to the elite schools. They were very wealthy. It seems like they even could afford uh, education with the leading rabbi. His name was Rabbi Gamaliel. And as a high schooler, Paul was taking advanced courses with the top teacher in the land in the top circles, the top career in the land, a religious career. That translated means this. Uh, Saul's parents moved to Silicon Valley. They sent their kid to Stanford and his professor of Computer science was Steve Jobs, okay? He has the best education and he has an advantaged in every way. And then we find out about his career after that, that he wasn't just a trust fund baby, but he actually worked hard. He worked harder than all the people around him, it seems, that he was making his way up the corporate ladder so fast that he was respected and he was feared by all of his contemporaries. He was there at the famous trial of Stephen, an early Christian martyr. The Christian church at that time, in Paul's view, was a threat to what he thought was the truth, the Jewish faith. And he was there at the stoning of Stephen, and he approved of it, and people looked up to him. He would go around arresting Christians and stomping out this uprising, and, and he, was, uh, he was thought of as, as one of the best at doing that. He, he not just arrested the men, but he even admits that he arrested the women that were part of this group and put them in jail. Okay, so he's on top of his career. He has a huge ceiling. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, imagine him coming to the very same Jewish people that respect him, the very same people that have given him this awesome opportunity, and he says to them, "Jesus of Nazareth is risen from the dead." Now what in the world would somebody that was at advantage as Saul of Tarsus? why in the world would he say something like that? Did he have anything to gain? In fact, he had everything to lose. From that point on, he lost everything. He tells the story about how his own people, the Jewish people, had rejected him from time after that. All of his former friends, they, they, they rejected him, they flogged him, they stoned him, they left him for dead. He lost all the money. He lost all the prestige. He started to make tents and he started to go around without any money or any goods, just preaching this thing that is Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead. One time he says that he was beaten or whipped with rods by his own people 195 times. You'd remember the number two if you had rocks and glass tearing your back open every hit. Now why would somebody with all that advantage all of a sudden say, say Jesus of Nazareth is risen from the dead? It's either A, he went insane, or B, he actually saw Jesus of Nazareth, risen from the dead. That's why he says what he says right here in verse 8. And last of all, Jesus appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. What he's saying there is, I didn't come in a natural route. I didn't, wasn't with Jesus when he was ministering on earth. I, I came to faith in him and I saw him after he was raised from the dead only. And that's when he came to me and showed me his hands and his feet And that's when he showed me that he was truly risen from the dead. Jesus of Nazareth had to have appeared to this man because if he hadn't, then this man is insane. He lost everything and he goes on for the rest of his life all the way to jail and he dies, it seems like, in jail because he holds on to this belief that Jesus is risen from the dead because he really did see Jesus rise from the dead. That was Jesus. Uh, that was why Paul, Saul of Tarsus, went all in with the gospel. That's why he lost everything. That's why he writes about it again and again, about how he lost everything, because he saw Jesus. He really did. Okay, mind break. Do you see the picture of the woman on the screen? Do you see the picture of the woman's face? Not if you see the picture of the woman's face. Respond. Okay, you see the picture of the woman's face? Now do you see it? Okay, what if I were to tell you that this is not a picture of a woman's face, that this is a picture of a man playing a saxophone? Who saw that first? All right, most people saw the saxophone first. Now do you see the picture of the woman's face? All right, smile if you see both the saxophone and the picture of the woman's face. All right, I've never seen so many Lutherans smile at once. (laughs) You're there with me. I didn't just put this picture up here for a mind break. This is what Paul is seeing when he looks at Scripture. And remember what he's educated in his whole life? The Scripture, the Old Testament Scripture. He saw Scripture in front of him and he saw one picture. But after Jesus rose from the dead, do you know what he saw in Scripture? He saw Jesus all over Scripture. He saw the saxophone player or he saw the woman's face. He saw what wasn't there that he couldn't see until Jesus appeared to him and said, This is me. I'm alive. And so Paul is, is going back to Scripture and everything that he hears and everything that he learned from Gamaliel about the Old Testament Scriptures and he's thinking to himself, you know what? This Scripture is credible. Paul's whole view, he's seen something, the physical resurrection of Jesus that he couldn't unsee. Once you saw the woman's face then you couldn't see it anymore. You tried to stop seeing it, but it kept popping up there. And once you saw the saxophone player, he kept popping up in your mind. You can't stop seeing that once you realize that it's there. It pops out in your mind. And this is what popped out in Saul's mind again and again as he went through the Old Testament scriptures after he saw the risen Christ. He heard passages that he had maybe learned by heart, maybe not, but ones that he knew. He heard passages from the Old Testament written long before Jesus, passages like Psalm twenty-two sixteen. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. After he sees Jesus risen from the dead and he sees the hands and the feet of Jesus and he thinks back to those words that were spoken so many years before Jesus, he says, This has to be true because I saw him. And right here in Scripture, it's credible. And he would look at passages, and again, um, there are many, many passages, too many to get through in one morning, but like Isaiah 53 4 and 5. Passages like, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Once Paul has seen the risen Christ, he can't help but think of the stories that Peter and James and John told about Jesus at the cross. The stories about Jesus when he said they were around, they were around him at the cross, and he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Stories about how he forgave the thief on the cross who said, that he had saving faith in Jesus. Today you'll be with me in paradise. You can't not see it now. All throughout scriptures. He says here two times, look at the verses from 1 Corinthians 15. He says in verse 3, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And then in verse 4 he says that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. He's saying, I can't help but not see Jesus, his death and his resurrection. And so he's thinking back on scriptures about uh, a physical resurrection, like Psalm 1610. You will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. It's there. And Paul's making the connection in his mind. Passages like Job 1925. I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end, he will stand on the earth. And when Paul saw Jesus' hands and his feet in his physical resurrection, he says, My Savior, my Redeemer, is standing upon the earth. Paul went all in because he saw the physical resurrection of Jesus. He saw its credibility in Scripture. But it's more than just making a mental connection with Jesus and the story of his predictions and his fulfillments. It's more than that because Paul, if he actually went all in and he lost everything for the gospel, had to have a heart movement and his heart movement was in his Savior that died for his sins. That's why he says in 1 Timothy 1.15, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of, who I, of whom I am the worst. Saul of Tarsus could not unsee Jesus' resurrection, its credibility from Scripture, and number two, its impact on Paul's life. And now I'm asking you today do you see the credibility from scriptures about the Savior? Do you see that the Messiah that was predicted is the Messiah called Jesus Christ of Nazareth and he stands on the earth? But more than that, do you see that he came not just to make a nice story that connects, but he came to make a story that connects with you and me? Because you and I can say with Paul, I am the chief of sinners. It took Jesus being nailed to a cross for me to see how deeply I hurt God when I sin. But God loves me so much that, like Paul says, that he sent his son and gave him into the world to save sinners like you and like me. That's what causes Paul to go all in with the gospel and causes him to give up everything because he knows that he has a Savior that has forgiven him everything. And that same Savior has forgiven you. And John 3.16 says he's forgiven the sins of the whole world. That's awesome. And he's standing on the earth. And he's alive today. Jesus' physical resurrection changed Paul's whole life. It shattered his worldview. It changed his worldview And he gave up everything, but then also we learn, and he goes into it, about all the other people that saw Jesus raised from the dead. Here it is from verse 5 through 7. That he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, Jesus' disciple, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. I'm going to talk about the major names in here, but first I want to just uh, just uh, give you kind of a uh, heads up about why people, writers of Scripture, put names like Cephas and James into the Scriptures. Um, you wonder, half the names that you read, and maybe you're in a connect group or a Bible study, and you start going through those long list of names, you start rolling your eyes, and you start saying, now why do we have to read all these names? I can't even pronounce them. Why are they important? And I'll tell you why they're important. Those names that are in Scripture are like footnotes for the writers in the first century. If you're writing a paper today, you need to give credibility about what you see. And when they say things, and this is crazy, but in Mark's gospel, I think it's Mark's gospel, when uh, Jesus is carrying the cross to, to Calvary, all of a sudden this guy named Simon comes in and he picks up the cross. Do you know Simon of Cyrene? And then it says, yeah, this is Simon, the father of Rufus and Alexander. And you think to yourself, well, who is Rufus and Alexander? Because they don't come up in the story at all. I mean, it's kind of just trivial. But the first century writer meant this. This is Rufus and Alexander. You know, the guys that we all know, you can go and talk to them about this. And so when Paul puts in names like Cephas and James, and he puts in specific names about people who have seen him, he says, go check the sources. These people have seen it too, and I'm not the only one. Okay, they have incredible stories, each and every one of them, and when Jesus appears to them, Jesus appears to them to build up their faith in the physically resurrected Savior. The first one is the 500. Let's think about that. He appeared to 500 people at one time. One popular commentator said that um, not even, that we don't even have uh, 500 credible sources, eyewitnesses that have seen George Washington's presidency. But do you believe that he was the first president of the United States? Here we have 500 all at once seeing Jesus. He says that uh, he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter. Peter had denied Jesus three times before his death, and now Jesus comes back to him and reinstates him. He loves him, and he tells him that he has his support and leadership three times. He appears to Peter, and you can check that source. It says that he appeared to James. James' story is interesting because James is Jesus' half-brother and James didn't even believe in Jesus before this. In fact, it says that uh, James, at times, and his brothers said, Jesus, let's tone down that whole Messiah thing. You're not the Messiah. We all know that. He didn't even come to faith until Jesus appeared to him later. And he said, this is true. My brother, my half-brother, is the Messiah. And James went on to be the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And after he was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, he was um, stoned to death because he preached the gospel. Peter, the one that we mentioned before, he preached the gospel that Jesus was raised from the dead and he was crucified upside down because he preached the gospel. And then he appeared to the 12 apostles. All of those apostles, save John, died a martyr's death because they preached the resurrected Savior. And John was put in exile. So here we have it. Saul of Tarsus, who is on top of the world, loses everything because he believes that Jesus was physically resurrected. And here are a bunch of fishermen that only can go up in society but decide not to, instead, to leave even their fisherman career behind and go into this, go into this faith and promote a faith where they just sank into martyrdom. What is that telling you about Jesus' resurrection? it was real it was so real that it affected their lives it was so real that it moved their hearts so much that they wanted to give up everything and go all in with the gospel and for jesus disciples this was particularly special because um, jesus when he rose from the dead he affirmed all of the promises that he had made to them in the past there's this one time when jesus is clearing the temple he's clearing out the temple all the money changers And uh, the Jewish authorities get upset. They're offended. And who would be if they came into your house and started throwing stuff around? And the Jewish authorities say, Now who gives you the authority to throw throw this place into chaos? And what does Jesus reply? He says, Destroy this temple in three days and I will raise it up again. That's in John chapter 2. And then John writes, We didn't know what he was talking about until after he was raised from the dead because he was talking about his physical resurrection from the dead. And from that moment on when the disciples, and Jesus talks about his physical resurrection no less than 14 times to his disciples, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples looked back on every time that he talked about being raised from the dead and they said it's true, he can do it, his word is true. We can rely on his word. We can trust that what he says he will do and we know that because he was risen from the dead and we saw it with our own eyes. Paul could not unsee the gospel when he saw Jesus physically resurrected. The disciples could not unsee the resurrection in the gospel. They could not unhear the promises that Jesus will always keep because he was raised from the dead. But let's stop talking about them. You cannot unsee Jesus' resurrection. You've heard it, and all of the people that have seen it, put the phone up in front of your eyes and Paul says, look, here it is. This is why I went all in. He also wants you to believe it with your heart because your Savior keeps all of his promises. When he says, I'm going to raise this body up, this temple up in three days, he did it. And when you open up the Bible, and maybe there's some things in the Bible that frustrate you or maybe bother you about what it says, Just know that every word is true because he's physically resurrected just like he said he would. And every other promise in the Bible, start there, right there with the promise that he's given you eternal life, that he walks with you in your struggle with sin because you're a baptized child of God, that he's with you in his body and his blood at the Lord's Supper and he strengthens you and forgives you. Believe that just like he promised he'd be raised from the dead, that his promises in his word, all over his word are true. He's going to walk with you if you're struggling in your relationships with other people right now and he's going to give you a perfect relationship in heaven with a physically resurrected body because he was raised from the dead. He's going to give you eternal happiness even though right now you might be living in a situation that there's no happiness in sight. He's going to give you eternal riches even if you're at the bottom of the barrel and that promise is true. His promise that Your sins from the past can't bother you. Your sins in the present aren't going to be your end, but he's going to forgive you, walk with you, and be your Savior. That's a resurrection that you and I cannot unsee. Hold that picture of your Savior in front of your eyes and walk with him, believe with him, because he has a grace and promises that you cannot unsee and you cannot unhear. Amen.